Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread, and thank you for joining me in this chapter on Paul's letters from prison. You know, there are about a hundred of you or so who are fairly consistent to listen, and I so appreciate that. I hear from some of you that it's of value to you, and that's encouraging, but could I ask you to just pass it on? I'd love to double that number. They they can start in at any point where they feel drawn in. My first chapter was a 40-plus episode trek through the whole New Testament, then we did 20 plus through each of the Gospels of Mark and John. And then most recently, it was almost 50 Psalms. Top 40 is what it started out with. And now we're doing Paul's letters from prison. For the most part, none of those chapters are time bound. If they were helpful to you a year ago, they should still be helpful to someone else now. So so just pass it on to a few, few of your friends. R- write a review on the site where you get the podcast or do whatever. I don't even know what you can do on those sites, but pass it on. I don't get anything from it, no commercials, just the knowledge that someone finds a bit of help in getting into the Word and letting the Word get into them. So we're finishing up Ephesians chapter 5 with both a, a focus on the church and on marriage. Paul weaves both of them together. Last time it was the church, this time let's look at some of his great words, these great words for marriage. And actually there's some stuff here on relationships that could help you regardless of whether or not you're married. So I hope you don't tune it out just because it's about marriage. So here's the deal. We we all understand the importance of that first kiss, the first year of school, first impressions, and the first day on the job. It's all about getting a good start. And and I think that's probably why we put so much energy and attention into weddings, right? Because we want to get off to a good start. But, But just think with me for a moment about what elements are absolutely essential to a wedding. What, what's the essence of a wedding and, and what's optional? For example, expensive clothes, optional. Clothes are not optional, but expensive clothes are optional. The bride wears a beautiful dress that costs somebody a lot of money in the hopes that it'll never be worn again. The groom wears a tuxedo, but generally he only rents it because it costs less money and frankly, nobody really cares how the groom looks. You never hear anyone say after a wedding, oh my goodness, the groom just looked radiant. Nobody buys modern groom magazine. The groom's tux is optional. Frankly, sometimes it almost seems like the groom is almost optional. Expensive clothes are not the essence of a wedding. Then you have receptions, and there's all sorts of receptions, right? Some receptions include full meals, dining, and dancing at fancy places. A, a decade plus ago, I went to two receptions held at the Penn Stater. Man, all night long, all I could think of was how glad none of my daughters were there to get ideas. Other receptions held in church basements with red punch and cookies and sandwiches. Receptions are not essential. They're optional. So many different elements you could have in a wedding. Bridesmaids, groomsmen, ring bears, dog ring bears, unity candles, music, and pastors. And frankly, none of them are essential. E- even pastors were all optional. It's interesting. I've done dozens of weddings, and in every wedding, including my own, incredible amounts of time are put into planning so many optional elements, but typically a fairly small amount of thought goes into the one essential element of every wedding. And that's the vows, right? I mean, that's what a wedding is. A wedding is a vow. Everything else is disposable. Marriage begins with a promise. Once upon a time, many of you listening stood with another person. Once upon a future time, some of you listening will stand with another person. And before witnesses and before the God who created you, you'll make a vow. You'll give your word. You'll make a promise. 
That's the essence of a marriage, and it's the heart of a marriage, a promise offered, a promise received, a promise witnessed, promise kept. That's the start and the heart of of every marriage. The heart of a marriage is not feelings, though feelings are vital. A marriage does not begin with a feeling, nor does it begin with physical intimacy, though our society is so very confused in that area. At the heart of a marriage is a vow. I remember my wedding, not one bit of anxiety, fear, nervousness, and until we came to the vows. When I knew instinctively that this is it, I mean, once these words come out of my mouth, there's no turning back. It's forever. I promise this to you as long as it makes sense. No, as long as you love me back or as long as it's easy. No, as long as you keep making me happy. Uh uh-uh. uh. I didn't stand with Lynn at the altar and say, I promise you that every day to come will be better than the last. I promise you unending bliss and happiness. And if that's what you think you were promised, I guarantee you that you will be disappointed. Lynn and I were married almost 40 years ago, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day, sooner or later, the day will come when she's disappointed. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you got the humor in that. I promise this to you as long as we both shall live till death do us part. It's a no matter what promise, which is which is really just about as close as two imperfect people can get to the kind of covenantal promise that God makes with us, that that here in this world where there's so much uncertainty, so much difficulty, so much darkness, I'll be an island of stability, an island of light, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, in good and bad, no matter what, God says, I promise. So what is it exactly that we're promising when it comes to marriage? Uh, you know, a, a lot of different vows are said, but I really believe that at the at the heart of it, the essence of what we're promising is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where it says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. I made a promise, you made a promise to be one. <laughs> so here's my question. How, how are you doing at keeping your word? How are you doing? Not how is your spouse doing? How are you doing? Because you gave your word. Are you connecting? Are you pursuing oneness? Or are you taking an exit? Are you disconnecting? Now, now, granted, there are big exits and there are little exits, aren't there? I mean, divorce is a big exit. Pouting is a small exit. Golfing on Mother's Day? <laughs> well, it depends on whether or not she's golfing with you. Big exits like adultery and divorce are the ones that get the most notice today. But before every big exit, there are many little disconnects. Pride and unresolved conflict are disconnects. That's that's why Paul said earlier at the end of chapter 4 and at the beginning of chapter 5, hey, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of malicious behavior, and instead be kind to each other, tenderhearted soft-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Follow God's example in everything you do because you are his dear children. Walk in love like Jesus did. You know, in Proverbs 13, 10, it says pride only, only pride. Pride always leads to arguments. Pride keeps us from hearing each other. It it disconnects us. It keeps us from admitting that our perceptions might be wrong. It's kind of like pride says, I don't need to hear what you have to say. I already know what you're thinking and what you're feeling. If you tell me that I'm wrong, you're just being defensive, which just goes to show that I'm right. (laughs) There's a reason I can say that so quickly. 
Pride makes us unteachable. Pride blinds us to our own faults. Love isn't blind. Pride is. Pride says, I'm not going to make the first move because I'm right. And so we have unresolved conflict. And it's not that conflict is such a bad thing. Conflict is a given, but bitterness is optional. Unresolved conflict disconnects. It builds walls. Paul doesn't say never be angry. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve it. What's the antidote for the disconnect? Be kind and compassionate. Forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave us. When do we forgive? Always, just like Christ. How do we forgive? Totally, just like Christ. What is forgiveness? Like Christ is saying to another person, I choose to live with the consequences of your actions. I will not ask you to make it up to me. I don't hold it against you. Here's the deal. At least what I found when it comes to unresolved conflict, we can either value figuring out who is right or we can value being reconciled, not both. If I value being reconciled over being right, I will begin to reconnect. Selfishness also brings disconnections. Paul says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. I mean, all of that comes from selfishness. And selfishness almost always leads to hurt. Usually the other person, but sometimes yourself. And, and, and it doesn't just come from actions. It comes from selfish words, obscene stories, foolish talking, greedy words, selfish words, Paul says. And, and you hear someone say, oh, just get over it. It's just words. <laughs> but man, there are times when you've been so impacted by just words that in your heart of hearts, you know what Solomon meant when he wrote in Proverbs, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a lie crushes the spirit. Words kill, words give life, poison, or fruit. You choose. So many ways we disconnect. So let me ask you again, how are you doing? How are you doing at keeping your word? How are you doing at keeping your vows, your your will-be-one promises? John Orberg talks about a friend who was very nervous because he was facing a confrontation, a conflict that he didn't want to face. He was looking for some sympathy from his wife. I'm so nervous, he said. My palms are getting sweaty. A moment later, dear, I'm so nervous, he said. My mouth is getting so dry I can hardly speak. No problem, she said. Just lick your, just lick your palms. <laughs> I mean, for some of you, honestly, as, as you're listening to my voice, it's kind of a palm-licking time. There's some unresolved conflict in your relationship, and if you don't take it on, it's going to lead you to a big-time disconnect. So maybe, maybe instead of disconnecting, we, we might consider, you might consider renewing your vows. You don't even have to have a ceremony. I'm just even talking in your heart of hearts, renewing your vows. And, and I think that's what Ephesians 5, 18 through 33 is all about. Don't be drunk with wine, Paul says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then down to verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And listen, Do not leave this part of Paul's letter without realizing that there is a connection, an intimate, deep connection between being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't believe you can have one without the other. And let me just say a word or two about that. See, and if we aren't filled with the Spirit, being one is going to be so difficult so, so just a, a few words on submission. Biblical submission is not agreement. Persuasion is not the path to submission. 
You understand? You, you don't have to be persuaded in order to submit. Biblical submission is only necessary. In fact, it, it happens when we disagree. When we disagree and one of us says, I don't agree with you, but we're going to do it your way and I'm going to do everything I can to make you right. <laughs> That's biblical submission. It's not let the baby have his way. It's we disagree, but I'm going to do it your way, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you right. That's biblical submission. And when we practice the discipline of submission, we're actually making space in our soul for more of the Spirit of God. There's such a vital connection between being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another. And I've got news for you. You don't have to be married to practice submitting to each other. And for, in fact, from here all the way into Chapter 6, Paul is going to list a number of places where we need to practice or where we can practice the, the discipline of submission. In our marriage is one, in our families another, in our workplace, and in our church. But for now, it's in marriage. Paul writes in verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. In other words, submitting to your husband is not just submitting to him, it's submitting as unto the Lord. Jesus views it in the same way. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, now he starts on the husbands, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, in our world today, submission has become this dirty word, and to even suggest submission in relationship to marriage is almost to be considered sexist, old-fashioned. But don't miss the fact that, that this... This writing on marriage comes after Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for for Christ. Paul calls all of us to submit to each other. It's not only the woman who is called to submit to the man, but the man who is called to love his wife like Christ, love the church, which is how he gave up his life for the church. Sounds suspiciously like submission to me. In other words, a wife is called to consider the needs of her husband as a greater priority than her own needs, while the man is called to consider the needs of his wife as a greater priority than his own needs. (laughs) Do you even know what the needs of your spouse are? If you haven't dug out what the needs are, they're not a greater priority than your own needs. You know, I found that the more I pursue my character and my wife's unmet needs, the better our marriage is. And the more I focus on my wife's character and my unmet needs, the more disconnected we get. And when we submit like that, we begin to celebrate. We have an actual reason to celebrate our unity. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Verse 31. The two become one flesh. And that's perhaps one of the most 
awesome statements on marriage that the two become one. Unity is the goal, but it's also a fact. There, there's something that takes place in marriage that is deeper than just the intimacy we develop. In Paul's eyes, it's almost mystical so that unity is not so much something we create as it is something we celebrate. And how does that unity take place? Lewis Evans, former pastor of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church, once made this amazing statement. He said he never knew a couple who went ahead with a divorce after first praying together on their knees every day for a week. (laughs) Psychiatrist Dr. Paul Turnier writes, it is only when a husband and wife pray together before God that they find the secret of true harmony. See, praying together is a celebration of unity. And and you know what the secret is? It's that in God, we are one. In God, we are one. Like a triangle, right? God at one end, my wife and I at the other ends, the other points of the triangle. And true harmony is not found in becoming the same, but it's found in walking in the same direction. The ideal way to become close is not by being followers of each other, but by simply walking together in the direction of God. You know, some people have the mistaken idea that marriage is like a new car, right? You receive your new car when you both say, I do. And at first you do everything you can to keep it looking new. But as time goes on, right, your your new car gets a few dings and occasionally you miss an oil change uh, and a scratch here or there, a bit junky on the inside. And no matter how well you keep it, sooner or later, every new car becomes a used car. At which you, you either trade it in or you junk it. But listen, on your wedding day, God didn't give you a new car. He didn't give you an already assembled marriage. Instead, to everyone who is willing to make a vow, he gives a box of parts. He's given or will give everything you need to put together the marriage of your dreams. And as time goes by, if we live out our, out our vows, your, your promise to work together to become one, what you have at the end will be a far greater value than what you started with in the beginning. Jesus once gave a very short, powerful call. He said, love one another. That call is your vow. How are you doing with your vow? How are you doing at keeping your word, your promise? Are you willing today to renew that vow? For some of you right now, that that would be easy. For some of you, that's hard. Right now, you're not even sure you like the person you ended up with, or maybe you don't like the person you've become. But it's never too late. You still have that box of parts, and there's still the invitation to be filled with his spirit if you'll submit one to another. And if you will be filled with his spirit, I'm telling you, there is no damage that a marriage has incurred that cannot be healed. And perhaps it just begins by saying, I made a promise, and I'm not going to quit. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for each and every family, each and every marriage represented here today. I pray for uh, the marriages that we know about. Maybe they're not even represented here. It's, it's, it's somebody that we know about, somebody that we care about who's going through a rough time in their marriage. God, I pray that you would pour your spirit out. God, I pray that each and every one of us, whether we're married or not, we would begin to understand what an amazing practice it is to practice the discipline of submission, that when we... When we submit one to another, we're actually increasing the space of our souls for the filling of the Spirit of God. God, thank you for giving us your Spirit. Jesus, thank you for for giving us the church as a model of marriage. 
And I, I pray for each and every marriage. God, would you heal the wounds? Would you encourage the people who are in the midst of it? Would you give us a never quit grit that says, I made a promise. I'm not going to stop loving you. We're going to work on this. We're going to get it done. And God, would you bless each and every marriage? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.